Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. everyone. Welcome back to the Where Are They podcast. Today's episode might be one you've heard of before. We are talking about the disappearance of 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker. Jalik was a foster child in the system for most of his life who had recently been adopted. He disappeared from Greenwich, New York in 2007. Jalik was only 12 years old. to everyone who has reached out in support of the cases we have covered so far. Last week's episode covering the disappearance of Benny Battle has stirred up quite a bit of activity and we want to keep momentum going, not just for Benny's case, but for all of the cases we cover. Thank you for sharing these cases and these missing persons, and of course, for helping spread the word. Jalik Rainwalker's case should make you angry when you hear it. This is a 12-year-old boy who never really stood a chance in life. He was diagnosed special needs as soon as he was born to a drug-addicted mother on the kitchen floor in an Albany, New York house. He was placed into the foster care system just two days later in the state of New York. For the first seven years of Jalik's life, he bounced around to six different foster care families. Jalik had some developmental delays and some behavior issues, and he required a therapeutic foster home. A therapeutic foster home is one in which the caregivers are supposed to have specific training to care for a special needs child. Jalik was born addicted to cocaine and just received a really rough start in life. So in Jalik's sixth foster home, he was able to remain there for four years, from 1998 until 2002. This family had started the process to adopt him, but some incident in the home caused them to change their minds. I'm not exactly sure what that incident was, but Jalik once again was placed into yet another foster home. I want to mention that everyone who cared for Jalik did indeed say he was a handful of a child. He had attachment disorders, which caused a lot of confusion and anger in him. He was prone to temper tantrums and outbursts. But everyone said he was also a sweet and likable kid with a beaming smile. He clearly was born at a disadvantage in life and 
needed help. And it just seems like he couldn't find the help and stability he needed. His seventh foster home would be in the care of Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald, beginning in 2002. Jalik was seven years old. Stephen and Jocelyn had three biological sons and an adopted daughter already when they brought Jalik into the home. Their adopted daughter had also come through the therapeutic foster care system, and all the children in the house would now range from age 7 to 14. Interestingly, the family that had cared for Jalik prior had reservations about him going to the Kerr-McDonald home. They lived in a very rural part of Washington County, New York, and they had a two-room cabin with no running water. They used an outhouse for a bathroom, and all seven people living in the home slept in one room. They did have a generator for electricity, but they only ran it for two hours each day. The children were all homeschooled and all in all lived a very non-traditional life. In 2004, the family officially adopted Jalik. However, because he, and along with the daughter they adopted, were special needs through the state, they continued to collect $1,500 a month for each of them in their care. In 2007, Jalik ended up threatening a child in their homeschooling group. Again, I don't know the particulars of this, but it did cause a lot of concern with the family. There was also some concern from Jocelyn and Stephen that Jalik was going to harm one of their other children. So in October of 2007, Stephen called Family Services. It was actually a crisis hotline set up for adoptive families. He stated that he wanted to reverse the adoption and have Jalik removed from his home. Family Services told him that was not possible and they couldn't do that. They did, however, suggest that he utilize respite care. So respite care is set up for caregivers who need a break and also the person that they're caring for can receive a break and they can go stay with another caregiver for an agreed upon amount of time. So Jalik went into respite care on October 24th for one week. The woman caring for him, I believe, had been one of his previous caregivers, so knew him. And she was able to care for him from October 24th to November 1st. Stephen had set up a second week of respite care beginning on November 2nd. However, they were going to have to pick Jalik up on November 1st and keep him for just one night before he could go to his next home. Stephen stated he didn't want to bring Jalik back to their home since his family was afraid of him. So he took Jalik to his dad's house in nearby Greenwich, New York. I know some of you may be thinking I'm pronouncing Greenwich wrong. However, all of the locals state that it is pronounced Greenwich and Greenwich, New York is actually the village closer to Manhattan. So when I'm talking about Greenwich, New York, I'm a little bit further upstate near Washington County. So Stephen picks up Jalik from his respite care home and takes him out to dinner at Red Robin. At 8 p.m., they were both confirmed to be eating dinner at a local Red Robin restaurant, and both a waitress and the restaurant manager confirmed seeing them there. After that, 
What we know of the timeline with Jalik comes directly from Stephen Kerr himself. After eating dinner, they drove back to Stephen's dad's house. His dad was out of town, and Stephen said they both went to bed shortly after they got home from dinner. And when Stephen woke up around 7, 7.30 on the morning of November 2nd, he glanced over to see Jalik still in bed, or so he thought. But when he walked over to the bed to check on Jalik further, he realized the bed was just stuffed with pillows and blankets to make it look like he was in bed, but he was not there. So Stephen apparently does what most people would do when they wake up and realize their special needs child is missing. He took a shower and then he drove into town to return some videos. I mean, if that doesn't raise a big question mark, I'm not sure what would. It does seem right off the bat like odd behavior. So he returns to the house after dropping off these videos and Jalik still isn't there. So it was 8.57 a.m. when Stephen called the police to report Jalik missing. So it really sticks out to me as being odd with that, besides pretty much all of it, is that Stephen and Jocelyn claim to be afraid of Jalik and afraid for their family. So if this is the case, shouldn't they be even more worried about his whereabouts if he left the home? If they thought he was dangerous, you think that would kind of have invoked some kind of panic in Stephen in looking for Jalik. Stephen tells police that he believes Jalik ran away because when he couldn't find Jalik in the house, he did a quick walkthrough and looked around and noticed that his duffel bag and his favorite stuffed animal were both missing. He described Jalik as wearing a bright yellow fleece hoodie, and he also provided authorities with a note that Jalik wrote, which in Stephen's mind, indicated that he ran away. So in Jalik's things, Stephen had found this note. And the note read, Dear everybody, I'm sorry for everything. I won't be a bother anymore. Goodbye, Jalik. It would come to light, however, from Jalik's respite caregiver, the woman who had Jalik the week prior, that Jalik wrote that note in her care because he said he wanted to apologize to his family for his behavior. It was not about running away. But Stephen and Jocelyn continue to believe that Jalik ran away. After a few days, they also suggest to police that maybe he was suicidal due to the problems that he was having getting along with others. Maybe that's why he signed the note goodbye. They also suggested to police that he might have joined a gang. So police pretty quickly began to doubt Stephen's story. And I also want to mention here that the police really came out for this kid. The investigation began right away. They conducted a ton of interviews and searches. Right off the bat, a team of detectives and police went on a physical search of the area, the woods, the neighborhoods. They came out in droves. There was also a team of investigators that stayed back to continue to question Stephen and Jocelyn and the people that knew them. So we're always quick to point out when police work is inadequate. However, this town really seemed to care and the police seemed to go above and beyond right away. 
In fact, to this day, they continue to work this case as if it just happened. They are not giving up on Jalik. Many of the townspeople continue to praise the police work that was done on this case. The police conduct a search on the house in Greenwich, Stephen's dad's house, which is allegedly the last place Jalik was known to be, according to Stephen. And they actually find Jalik's duffel bag and stuffed animal that Stephen had said Jalik took with him. They found both items stashed in the corner of the garage of the home. By January of 2008, Stephen Kerr was the official person of interest in the case. They did polygraph Jocelyn McDonald, and the results were inconclusive. Stephen refused a polygraph, and I know this always looks bad when someone refuses to take a lie detector test, but they are so unreliable. I really don't think it's that unusual. A lot of lawyers will advise against it. And also, supposedly, Stephen had agreed to take one, But after Jocelyn took hers, she was so upset with the questions that she was asked, Stephen changed his mind. Also, Stephen and Jocelyn began to really push the theory that Jalik had ran away and possibly to join a gang. And their reasoning for this was because Jalik was biracial and they lived in a predominantly Caucasian town, that Jalik wanted to experience the other part of his culture. And I'm not sure why joining a gang had to be the way to do that in Stephen and Jocelyn's mind. So if that's not completely racist, I'm not sure what is. But whether Stephen is racist or not isn't the issue here. A couple months after the disappearance, Stephen says he received an anonymous letter, possibly from Jalik. This letter is very unusual. It kind of doesn't make a lot of sense, but it references some personal things about Jalik. I'm just going to read the letter here so you can see what I mean. Jalik, still alive. Needed a foot soldier for this war on drugs. Picked him up at Route 40, Post 30. He's okay. No fake. He says, asks his mama and papa. Who are the Macaroni family? My cat named Diamond. Why does Franti yell fire? Don't try to look. We are not there. So this letter apparently showed up at the home of Stephen and Jocelyn, and they did turn it into the police. The police tried to make sense of what these references in the letter mean. Diamond was the name of Jalik's cat, so there was a connection there. Franti Yells Fire is a reference to a song, but police aren't sure the connection or the meanings with some of the other items in this letter. Police believe that Stephen himself might have written this using the computer at his dad's house. So they quickly confiscated that along with the printer, but they were actually unable to confirm if it was used to write and print the letter. Four months after Jalik went missing, Stephen and Jocelyn pack up and leave Washington County, moving across state lines and into Vermont. They have refused to help investigators, and they have not called to check in on the investigation one time since moving. They claim they still believe Jalik is alive and out there somewhere. 
But my question is, only four months later, why would you leave the home that Jalique would know to return to if that is indeed the case? So even with Stephen and Jocelyn in another state, the police continue to investigate. Police never let up. They dig into Stephen's story a little more and pull his cell phone records. On midnight, the night of November 1st, Stephen's phone pinged on a cell tower near an industrial part of town, which is also close to the Hudson River. This is nowhere near the home where he said he had been sleeping at that time. Remember, he said when they returned home from dinner at Red Robin, shortly after 8 p.m., they went straight to bed. So at midnight, his phone pings on this tower. They were able to find some surveillance footage in that area, and they do find a similar van to Stevens driving down Main Street near that area where the phone had pinged or heading towards that area. But the footage is so dark and grainy, you can't even confirm it was Stevens' van or even if it was Steven driving. You can't see the license plate. You can't see inside the van at all. So at best guess, it is possibly Stevens' van. Of course, with all of this circumstantial evidence coming to light, the public fully believes Stephen had something to do with Jalik's disappearance. And I'll definitely admit it doesn't look good. Barbara, Jocelyn's mother and Jalik's grandmother, does some interviews and prays for Jalik's safe return. After a while, however, she comes forward to say that she also believes Stephen did something to Jalik and that her daughter is helping cover it up. Barbara even petitioned the court to obtain custody of Jalik should he return, but apparently it was not granted, which is kind of baffling in my opinion. Seems like a no-brainer to get Jalik into someone else's care after everything that came to light, but I also don't know the specifics of that particular custody case. Shortly after Stephen and Jocelyn move out of their cabin in Washington County, Barbara breaks into the home and takes a flashlight. She wants to look for clues on Jalik's whereabouts or get some kind of an idea of what was happening in that home. And what she found would put a knot in her stomach. In Jalik's corner of the room, remember they all shared one room, and apparently each had a little area of their own in this room. So Jalik had a corner. She finds his corner and right there in plain view sat his yellow fleece sweatshirt. The same one that was on all of the missing persons descriptions, flyers, posters, billboards. And the same one that Stephen claimed Jalik was wearing when he disappeared. So Barbara's first reaction was they've been looking for a boy all of this time in a bright yellow hoodie, but actually he was wearing something else. So her first thought was the description was wrong. We've been looking for all of the wrong signs and wonders if they could have missed something because they were looking for a boy wearing a yellow hoodie. But her second reaction was that Jalik had most likely met with foul play and Stephen and Jocelyn had something to do with it. Why else would they lie and keep up the charade with this yellow hoodie and hide it in the house? 
Barbara ends up taking the yellow hoodie and turning it into police. And in doing so, she was charged with burglary for breaking and entering into the home, which I'm certain she could care less about. The police did take that evidence, however, and make it known to the public that they had the yellow hoodie and they had found it in the home. So Barbara has done many interviews and continues to search for her grandson, hoping and praying for answers to the media for her grandson. She said she just wants to hold him again and tell him that she loves him. She had publicly stated that her daughter and son-in-law were fostering for the money. They collected $36,000 a year for their two special needs children. She also stated that she had witnessed Stephen dragging Jalik one time to the river to dunk him as a form of punishment. And one time she knew that he had been punished and his punishment was he was not allowed to use the outhouse. So the dynamics between Stephen and Jocelyn in the home seemed very weird. Barbara said Jocelyn kicked Stephen out multiple times for being violent towards the children. And one time when he had been violent towards Jalik, Jocelyn made Stephen write an apology letter to Jalik. And then he had to do Jalik's chores for a week. Does anyone else find that super weird? Poor Jalik never really had a chance at life at all. Barbara did call Jocelyn once to let her know that her grandmother had passed away. Jocelyn ended up filing stalking charges against Barbara for calling her. The two no longer have any contact at all. In the years that have followed, there have been multiple sightings of Jalik out there. All have turned out to be false leads. There was a boy seen in Albany that resembled Jalik a lot. And he was approached. They did confirm that he was not Jalik Rainwalker. The same boy continued to be stopped multiple times with people believing he was Jalik. This boy was asked to carry a piece of paper from law enforcement stating that he was not Jalik Rainwalker. And the question of Jalik's biological family comes up often too. His mother now resides in Florida, from what I can tell, has been exceptionally helpful to law enforcement. She offered her DNA right away, and she said she will do whatever she can to help. Police have said that she has been super cooperative and is resemblance of the judgment of Solomon story in the Hebrew Bible where the real mother is identified because of her compassion to the child. There are a few theories in this case, although one rings more obvious than the others. The first theory, did Jalik run away? Not very likely as all of his belongings were left behind, the same ones that Stephen said he took with him, the duffel bag and the stuffed animal. Also, where would he go? He was not well-versed in the world, especially the way he lived. They lived without water and electricity most of the time. I'm sure he had little to no internet access or even ways to contact other people. If he did run away, I'm not sure he would have gotten very far 
or if he had ended up in the wilderness of New York, that he would have even been able to survive that on his own. Theory number two is really a theory that we just hear from Stephen and Jocelyn, and that's that Jalik joined a gang. I honestly just can't even bring myself to consider that this one is even a possibility, but Stephen and Jocelyn insist that it is. The next theory is suicide. He did have a rough life. Maybe he was just tired of it, even at 12 years old. He had a tough 12 years. All that bouncing around, what sounds like possible abuse that he endured. But how does a 12-year-old commit suicide and hide his body? Stephen and Jocelyn also referenced the letter that he wrote, which he signed goodbye as a possible connection to maybe him committing suicide. But I don't think that necessarily does. He was a 12-year-old special needs boy. I think that was just him signing off on the letter and possibly that they're reading more into that than there is. So the last theory is that Jalik met with foul play at the hands of Stephen Kerr and possibly Jocelyn McDonald. Honestly, this is what everyone believes, including the police. They are waiting for that last piece of evidence that would allow them to put closure on this case. There's so much circumstantial evidence here. I'm actually kind of surprised they haven't been charged yet. But I do believe we may see something develop here in the future, especially with the dedication of the police and the public to see this case solved. Now, there's a couple more interesting facts in this case. No one is quite certain why, but Stephen and Jocelyn adopted Jalik and their daughter from the foster care system and changed their last name to Rainwalker. Jalik was also not receiving any medical care for his disabilities. He was not in counseling. He wasn't getting any professional help at all that he really needed. The foster families that cared for Jalik previously, along with community members and even complete strangers, have paid for billboards, participated in searches, and hung up missing posters, while Stephen and Jocelyn have done none of those things. I also think it's interesting that Stephen and Jocelyn lived such a non-traditional lifestyle, yet they had to have the training and be monitored to be a therapeutic foster home? Did they fool children and family services? Or is their lifestyle, which is one without running water, seven people in a two-room cabin, is, is that acceptable for foster care in New York? I can't help but wonder if this case should shine light on that system and how they likely played a role in the failing of little Jalik Rainwalker. So what do you think happened to poor Jalik? Do you believe, as many do, that Stephen Kerr is responsible? Do you think that Jalik may still come home one day? Is he still alive? And what, if any, role does Jocelyn play in this? If you have any information as to Jalik's whereabouts, please call the Greenwich Village Police Department at 518 692 9332. 
There are a few Facebook pages and groups dedicated to Jalik as well. I encourage you to seek them out and just help share any information that they have on there. They do post regular updates. Please share Jalik's story. Help us keep his name out there. Yet another case that seems so solvable with just one more piece of the puzzle. Thank you all for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure you are following us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us under the Where Are They podcast. We will be sharing case updates as we receive them. You can also send us a message there or you can email us at canwefindthem@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We welcome any case suggestions that you might have or any tips that you want to send on to us, we will forward them to the appropriate person. Also, if you are interested, please support our YouTube channel by subscribing over there. We are adding video stories as we can help gain more exposure for these cases. Subscribing also helps us rank higher in searches and helps the missing person's name rank higher in searches, which is very important to continuing to get coverage for these people. We will see you next Wednesday. And until then, stay safe and hug your loved ones.